Here comes the cowboy. Welcome to the High for this podcast. I'm your host, Scott Taylor. A few new releases I want to talk about from this past week. The first, of course, is Mac DeMarco, which we just heard there. Here comes the cowboy. Another is UFOF by Big Thief. When I was at Rough Trade in Williamsburg last week, looking at all the new vinyl This was the only album that was actually sold out, so that was a good sign. This album's received a 9.2 on Pitchfork, so it's already being lauded as being one of the better albums of the year so far. All right, we are back to talk about this week's concerts that we attended. Only one show this week, which was Strand of Oaks. At Music Hall of Williamsburg, which was a cool show. Glad to have been there. Performing music from his new album, Eraserland. I was at this show with my buddy Seth, who's actually in the air quotes studio with us today we were also uh hanging out with our friend steve taylor and a couple other friends pete and juno at the show so i want to introduce seth because seth has a lot of perspective on the new york city music scene he was my mentor so to say of how i learned how to navigate the vast ocean of shows to see in new york city so say hi to the podcast seth Hey. So can you kind of tell us, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but how you got started in seeing concerts. I know we both grew up with parents who took us to shows at an early age, which was helpful um, in getting us started and seeing big names. But then eventually both of us moved to New York. And when I moved to New York, you seemed way more versed in the scene than I did. I'd only seen a couple concerts, I think. John Mayer, and I saw Mute Math at Gramercy Theater, but I would run into you, and you would always have three shows you'd seen, you'd be sitting on the floor next to Paul Rudd at the Bowery Ballroom, so how did all that get started? Uh, well, I guess we're going way back, so yeah, I grew up in New Jersey, and my parents actually liked going to concerts, I mean, and you know, be like, you know, once a year or something like that, maybe, and they, you know, with me, but yeah, my first concert was, must have been like 92 and 93, the Genesis we can't dance tour Giant oh, yeah. Stadium. Uh, that was a Giant Stadium. Giant Stadium. Oh my god. Yeah, and I think we sat like in the last row or something like that. So it's something insane. Genesis was huge, you know. And then uh, my second or th- I always get confused which was next, but uh, the next one was either uh, Billy Joel, Elton John face to face, also Giant Stadium, or it was uh, Def Leppard at the Brendan Byrne Arena, which is the arena at the Meadowlands. So right. The first couple of shows were there. Eventually became the IZOD Center. Yeah, yeah. Continental Airlines at one point. Yeah. Know. So those were all when I was like 12, 13, 14. And then when I was in high school, 
Uh, my dad had access to a, uh, a luxury suite at Madison Square Garden through work. And uh, what he found, I think, what was like most of the clients that he, you know, wanted to go to things all wanted to go to sporting events. So nobody wanted to go to the concerts. So if I just asked for something, I usually got to go. And so, like, and, and he would, him and my mom both would take me. And so I so saw, like, R.E.M. and the Monster Tour, Tom Petty and the Wildflowers Tour. Oh, man. Um, like, all these really cool shows. And then, like, you know, like a Z100 Jingle Ball, you know, and then, like... <laughs> Pump, still going strong, Pump that Jingle Daddy Ball. and the Family, No Way Out Tour, which I actually saw twice. You did? Yeah. Uh, two different legs of the tour. But... Was that still Biggie during that? Uh, no, he had died. That was the album... In tribute to Biggie. Okay. You know, but it was like Busta Rhymes and Foxy Brown. And Jay Z actually was one of the openers. Like, Reasonable Doubt, I think, had come out, but he wasn't huge yet. Maybe Blueprint won. So it kind of trained me to see, like, kind of these, like, big shows, you know, and they always took me to, like, I remember we drove to Philadelphia to see the Rolling Stones. Um, and then uh, went to college in Boston and actually just didn't really go to that many shows, to tell you the truth. I, mean, I remember seeing a few, um, but. Never went to that many small shows. Saw, like, a couple theater shows there or the arena, but still didn't go down to, like, the club level too much. Um, I mean, a few things, I think. I mean, like... And what were the spots? It was, like, in Boston, probably Paradise and T.D. the Bears and Yeah, no, it was on, Paradise was two blocks from my apartment uh, for two nice. years, and I never went in there. Interesting. And I did go to shows, like, I ended up, like, uh, down near Fenway, there were a bunch of, like, venues, uh, Karma and... Avalon, I think. Yeah. And I saw, like, this is back in my, like, we, like you know, I don't regret this music that I was listening to at the time, but, like, I saw, like, Rusted Root and Blues Traveler. Oh, dude, of course. I think Dispatch was an opener at some point, you know. And uh, I think I saw John Mayer, uh, I think it was, like, when his indie album was out. Yeah. Um, well, there was definitely that area in the early 00s that was oversaturated with jam. That was almost... Blues Traveler at that point was like Led Zeppelin comparatively. Right. And, and, at the time, and even Rusted Root. And at the time I was huge into like Dave Matthews Band, which now yeah. it's like we've experienced this recently where <laughs> yeah. we almost can't even like go to a concert and stand through it and like it just doesn't do it for us anymore. Oh no. You know? We actually went last summer at the Art Center. Yeah, PNC Bank Art Center. And it felt like we were in a Bud Light commercial at a Jimmy Buffett concert. Right. Yeah. 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 It was yeah. not the greatest experience. Yeah, I had a similar thing growing up where, you know, first concert with my family was Bon Jovi, New Jersey tour. And then it was like once a year, it, see, I guess it was that kind of cadence, once a year, twice a year, I saw like Aerosmith, um, Joan Jett opened up for that. Right. I saw the Aerosmith Nine Lives tour in Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw Great White and Tesla. That's when Tesla was doing the five-man acoustical jam, Signs. Yeah. And um, Great White was actually the headliner. Maybe it was a double headliner bill, but Great White had once bitten, twice shy. And then maybe the apex for me was like, I think 91 was Van Halen, uh, second night of the tour in Nashville. Allison Chains opened up. That was a. Wow. Yeah, that was a Van Hagar. Which was my preference for Van Halen. I know it's not yours. Or Allison Chains is kind of like kind of heavy for that, right? Oh, well, I think at the time I, it was really coming out of metal going into grunge to where there was actually not. It was a blurry line to when something became grunge and not metal, or when or what what of grunge wasn't metal because to me the only signifier was that grunge really didn't have guitar solos. But unless, because it's really, if you're comparing thrash to metal, it's kind of obvious. Like if you have some Metallica or some Anthrax, that's definitely maybe metal and thrash. But 
<clears throat> what made stuff grunge. A lot of it was just like regionality for a while. Because like, you know, sound. Right now, I get, yeah. yeah. I mean, I just think it's either that like a band like Alice in Chains, which is like the heavier of the grunge bands. Yeah. You know, uh, opening for the band Halen with Sammy yeah. Hagar, which is sort of like at that point, you know. I don't remember at the time, but now it's kind of like dad rock. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Now it's kind of like the way we look at almost Steely Dan or something. But it's right. like, uh, yeah, at the time, it's weird, too, because they were mainstream. And, like, bands like that were still selling millions of records. And I think Van Halen on that, rec- on that you know, cycle had four or five videos from the record. Which album was that? Foreign Lawful Carnal Knowledge. Uh, right Now. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, they won, like, the VMAs, I think. Yeah. And they, you know, that was Crystal Pepsi time and all that. Yeah. Yeah, for me, it wasn't until, you know, I saw Fish, I guess, in 95, and then eventually started seeing Dave Matthews Band once I started going to college. That was, like, the quintessential college band at the time. I started school. I was always voraciously into music, obviously. I majored in music and all that. But I, going to concerts, I was always limited, you know, by money and geography because Tallahassee, we kind of took what we got that came into Tallahassee. It's like a secondary market, kind of like a Buffalo or a Syracuse. Right. Uh, but we would always travel for Dave Matthews and then the occasional other artists like the Black Crows maybe. Or right. So, I mean, I was lucky I never really had to travel too much for Dave Matthews yeah. until I kind of been. I mean, as far as I went, it was like Boston, like, you know, for the summer, just going back to visit over the summer, you know, even. But, I mean, I remember my first Dave Matthews concert was in 96, and then I saw him again in, like, 98. And then, like, went to college. And then, you know, it skyrocketed where I think in a 10-year period, I think I saw him, like, 40-some times. Oh, yeah. And and I saw some great opening acts that way, too. Um, like Ben Harper, The Roots. Uh, I mean, there was one concert. It was Ben Folds 5 and Beck, you know, when Odalay came out. Oh, my God. You know? And... and were they the openers for Dave Matthews? Yeah, Giant Stadium. Wow. It's the first time they played Giant Stadium. And then, that was in 98, and then 99, I think Dave Matthews played two nights at Giant Stadium, and then 2000, 2001 was three nights. So I kind of kept just seeing, like, all these shows. Um, and so, even though, like, you know, I, I might say that's not necessarily my cup of tea in music these days, it at least um, got me wanting to see live music. Yeah. And what year did you actually move to New York, where you were living in New York, in, in the scene, so to say? Well, I moved back from Boston, uh, from college, I guess it was those, uh, in the summer 2002, but then I was still living at home in Jersey until I think it was like 2005, but my dad had a place in the city, so I was crashing there a lot, and so I would see shows then, but still kind of bigger ones, as I recall. I remember buying a ticket to just to see... And I think it was at this point that I started going, being comfortable going to shows by myself, which I didn't necessarily do in college. Um, but I remember going, like, buying a ticket to see the Rolling Stones at Madison Square Garden and seeing U2 there. Um, or I think Dave Matthews played his Central Park show. You know, I was at all those by myself because it was kind of like... You just realize, well, I either go by myself or I don't go. And then... At the same time, I think a lot of the credit to go to like the smaller stuff started. I think my friend Dave, who I met in college, he, I think at the time was maybe living at uh, home in Long Island. Uh, the first time I ever went to Webster Hall, I just looked up was two thousand three. It was the Ryan Adams Rock and Roll Tour. Wow, um, for many reasons. Wow, right? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, I remember Ryan Adams was one of those albums that 
I think I bought gold. I just kind of found it at the Virgin Mega Store in, in Boston. And, um, but yeah, my friend was like, oh, Ryan Adams is playing Webster Hall. And it, like, I think even the thought of going to like a general admission venue, like, you know, I'm short. I always liked Brina shows, you know, I liked having space, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it kind of threw me off. But I remember going to that show and just seeing this awesome night of music. And I mean, he was definitely screwed up. Yeah. Uh, and and then it was Webster Hall. So there was, I remember there's, he's playing like a small acoustic set at some point in the show, but there's like dance music coming from the downstairs. Like you hear the bass. Yeah. You know, I think they, they did better at that later on at Webster. Yeah. You know. Webster's always, I mean, now it's a little different because Webster, as we know, and we've talked about in the past couple episodes, was purchased by the company that owns the Barclays Center. I think that's AEG in some sense too. Yeah, it's Cause, a vision of that. Yeah, because uh, Bowery, who presents, is booking all three rooms now. But Webster was kind of half concert venue, and the rest of the time was EDM club nights. Right, so you'd leave the shows, and then there'd be like a line of people to get in to yeah. go to the dance club night. You know? Yeah, and, and technically, if you stayed after the show, you could be there for dance club night, but usually the crowds didn't intersect. Like The people who went to the shows actually didn't want to be there for the dance night. Right, that happens now sometimes at Brooklyn Bowl. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, I remember being in Tallahassee in 2003, even 2002, and I used to listen to K-Rock on the internet. I would listen to, um, either live streams or taped segments that they would post. And I remember, this is back when, like, Evanescence got big, and I remember there being a concert stream from Webster Hall. It's the first time I'd ever heard of it. And then I remember John Mayer played a show at Webster Hall. Um, it may have been with the blues trio that he had, because he also did a show at the Bowery Ballroom. I think the Webster Hall show may have been New Year's of 2003, and I was super into John Mayer from the very beginning, <clears throat> so that was a huge um, indicator for me. And actually, the first time I ever went to Webster Hall was with Seth, was, was in 2008, the new pornographer show. And that really opened my eyes to the New York City concert scene, because like I said, I would run into Seth and we'd say, hey man, how's it going? What have you been doing all week? And Seth would always say, oh, I saw Counting Crows at this venue and then I went and saw Ryan Adams here. I saw this person here. And I'm like, I'm like, how did you even know this stuff was happening? And um, after we went to that Webster Hall show, I really thought, I'm like, oh, this is, I got to figure this out and get into this. And um, I think the Bowery Presents thing was the first way I knew where to find most of the concerts. Bowery Presents, as we've mentioned, was kind of the promoter for a number of years. It's splintered now, like we've said, between Live Nation and AEG. AEG has the 50% stake in Bowery Presents. But once I found the Bowery Presents website, I could kind of get this overall view of what was happening in the city. So that was 2008, and that was the first year for Terminal 5. I was at E-Music at the time. I remember the first show that was ever at Terminal 5 was, I think, The National. And then what, maybe the second one was Spoon. Because I remember a couple of people at E-Music talking about going to see Spoon at Terminal 5. And at the time, we were living on the Upper West Side. I've so, been at that show. I've definitely seen Spoon at Terminal 5. Yeah. Um, so maybe that, was, that could have been my first show there. Yeah. I think the first time I was at Terminal 5 was... The Black Keys with um, uh, Chris and his girlfriend at the time, Katie. But 
the show we both remembered was the uh, Hold Steady and Drive by Truckers. It was either the night after Obama got elected. Yeah, it was the night after because they were all super happy. Yeah. Um, which was interesting because I went with my friend Dave and four years before we were at Madison Square going to see R.E.M. And um, they came out and they did, they were part of that whole, was it like Vote for Change or, yeah. or something? That whole thing was like R.E.M. and Springsteen and Pearl Jam and they played in all like the battleground states or whatever and they lost, you know. Basically, and I remember they were just such a bad mood. They opened the night with um, It's the End of the World as We Know It, which wasn't even the song that they had played at all the whole tour. Yeah. And they opened with it, and you could just tell, and like, years later, I saw R.E.M. again, MSG, and they, like, apologized for that night. Yeah. But then four years later, you see the Hold Steady and the Truckers, you know, and I had never even listened to the Drive-By Truckers at that point. Yeah. I think. And um, I think pretty sure it's either the first or second time I saw Hold Steady yeah. but everybody was in such like this joyous mood oh yeah know? and what's interesting is that the Drive by Truckers that was some glue to my previous life in Tallahassee and with my band Whiskey Richard is that we played a little festival kind of outside Tallahassee I think a couple of years before that and Drive by Truckers were the headliner and I remember us being on this regional like five levels down circuit for a long time and it was obvious, you know, when you follow the circuit and you end up, you play out of town a lot, you see the same band names over and over again, but then you can t- kind of tell who's making it at like another level. And Drive-By Truckers were that band for a long time to where every town we'd research, like the big venue Drive-By Truckers were playing and they were huge in the Southeast. And so when we saw them at Terminal 5, it was kind of like this full circle moment. But that was also the start of my fandom and maybe yours too for the Hold Steady which became basically my favorite New York City band for a number of years yeah. after that. The Hold Steady, uh, I came in, it must have been around the Stay Positive album, um, but they were the local band, so they were always, they, they were really huge at that point, you know, like, the Boys and Girls in America was getting, you know, got them a lot of buzz, and it's like they just played here like every couple of months. Yeah, it was and, great, yeah, and we saw them... So many different venues. I think one of the first times I really saw a show at Music Hall of Williamsburg might have been 2010. I may have seen a show before that. I think I saw, I don't know who, but I remember us going to the whole city show at 2010 at Music Hall of Williamsburg when they're like, you know, our first show was six years ago. This night when it was when Music Hall of Williamsburg was called North Six, and I remember from then I saw Bowery Ballroom. I saw them at, um, we did that, that show at the Beekman Beer Garden, remember that? Down oh at yeah, the, that uh, was a great one. That was down at the, uh, what was that called? South Street Seaport? Yeah. Which eventually burned and became Pier 17, I guess. Or Pier something. Yeah, they didn't normally have shows there. It was like a yeah. special thing that they did. It was a Brooklyn Vegan like concert event. It wasn't that crowded, I don't think. Yeah. It was just like one of those weird things that people don't know about or hear about. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I remember the whole Steady, the, uh, they did... Four nights in 2009 and it was two nights at Bowery two nights at Music Hall and uh, me and my friend Dave um, went we got we went to three out of four you know and this in a row and the reason and the only reason we didn't go to the we, we didn't go to the third night because we had tickets to see Jenny Lewis at Music Hall Williamsburg okay so it might have been my first time at Music Hall but then we were back at that venue again the next night to see the whole Steady again yeah you know? 
And nobody knew at the time, it wasn't until the show started that the whole city started playing, like, because they only had four albums at the time, so they were playing the f- albums in full um, each night. Yeah. And you, you kind of, like, realize that. Yeah. After it, you know. And, you know, a lot of people talk about the early OOs as being this, the apex of New York City for music. And I actually think the end of the decade was really stacked because that's when you had the National who lived in town. You had the Hold Steady. Dirty Projectors were a huge band, a band I loved seeing. And they did the similar thing. They did the Four Nights where two at Bowery, two at Music Hall of Williamsburg. LCD Sound System came back into the fray at this point. They announced. In early 2010, they decided they were going to play shows. They announced four nights at Terminal 5. And then they ended up going on like this year and a half long tour that ended with their air quotes final concert at Madison Square Garden, which we know that didn't last very long because when Brooklyn Steel opened, I think in 2017, I think I counted that they played like between 17 and 21 nights. Well, they reunited at Webster Hall like the year before or something. And, right. Uh, I, was at, I was at that show, like the first one. Yeah. Um, but that was like a band I never got, I got into later. I think I got into them more when they were away. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the reason I bring this up is that bands like that and bands like Grizzly Bear and a lot of these different indie rock acts, which we definitely identify with being Brooklyn and being Williamsburg and Greenpoint, most of them are all gone. So. Right. It's interesting, like reading that Meet Me in the Bathroom book and then realizing a lot of those bands either... Uh, like where did most of those bands went? You know, the yeah. Strokes are sort of around, but not really. Like they get together just like yeah, thinking for some cash grab shows. Yeah, and um, Julian Casablancas is now playing with the Voids. Right, and he's pretty active. I mean, yeah. that's yeah. Yeah, they actually have a show coming up at Market Hotel, which is like this DIY type venue right near the J Train at the Myrtle Stop. That's actually operated by NYC Taper. Believe it or not. That's one of that and Trans Pecos are two venues that they have a hand in. But it was interesting, like reading that book and then kind of thinking back to that time because we weren't necessarily around then and kind of saw a lot of those bands later on, um, kind of after they were over the hump. Like I remember I saw Interpol for the first time at Bowery Ballroom, but it was a special show when Our Love to Admire came out. Yeah. And, you know, it was like an album release show and, um, you know. It was kind of hard to get into. Yeah. But, you know, or, um, you know, what else in the book? Like, you know, The Strokes, I finally saw, like, you know, years later. Yeah. Um, same with LCD Sound System. You know, um, The Walkmen saw them basically right before they broke up. You know? Yeah, that, and that's the unfortunate thing, too. It's like The Walkmen. What's weird, too, is that the lore, the, yeah, the lore of a lot of these bands is that The Walkmen, looking back on them now, God, what an amazing band! But I had a I had a chance to see them before they made their great albums, and they was kind of whatever. And right. then and then they made like two or three amazing albums, and you know we were at Terminal Five. I don't know if you were there. They did uh, for Lisbon. No, um, we had a contingency there. That show was that album and show was amazing. Um, I remember seeing them at Summer Stage. It was like a free show. It was the first yeah. time I saw them. And maybe, I think there were a couple of reasons I didn't get too much into it. And my, you know, most of it might not even have been them. It was like blistering hot, sun's out. Oh, yeah. Um, middle summer. And Dinosaur Jr. played right before them. Yeah. And, and it, I think it was like the sword 
maybe or some other kind of kind of metalish band then dinosaur jr and then the walkman and so it's like you go from like dinosaur jr that has like you know he is you know he's Jay Masses is like surrounded by these three huge Marshall stacks and it's loud as hell and it's awesome. And then all of a sudden you have the Walkman who had like some guy just come out to just play the triangle. And yeah. It's like you're kind of done yeah. you know, at that point. Yeah, and that's the thing too is like the reason a lot of these smaller venues are important in New York is that there are a lot of these bands that only make sense in smaller venues. Like we talked about this a, a bunch. You know, a lot of the bands we see at Music Hall of Williamsburg, that maybe is far as they go and that's okay because they're not they're not gonna be able to make the leap to playing radio city or Madison square garden or they just they don't have the production they don't have or just the sound the sound it's, yeah it's it get big like you know we saw that x hex show um, a couple weeks ago at bowery and i think they just played elsewhere the other night and i love their new record i think it's one of my favorites and i saw them at mercury lounge i've seen them at um uh warsaw as an opener and, you know, we just saw them at Bowery. And I think they, they do the festival scene a little bit. And I don't really do festivals. Yeah. Um, but I can't imagine that sound growing. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, I'm glad they added in a bass player. And so now they have two guitars and it shreds. It's awesome. Yeah. But, like, that sound's never going to necessarily move up there's just yeah. not necessarily a market for that sound. exactly yeah. and, and the thing is is that every time i see a band at Master square garden which i mentioned last week that's on the indie level for them and their openers i'm nervous for them I'm like what's this going to sound like in this big ass you know room because it's a different game like when you see these artists that have big productions big light shows and they're set up to be these massive productions you know, it makes a little more sense, but for bands, it's a lot harder. Yeah, so we tend to prefer the smaller venues, and like I say, I got into them, you know, because of Seth. Was there one thing that made you seek out these venues? Like you said, your friend Dave, I guess, was acquainted and stuff, and maybe you guys would see shows together, but how did you get into the routine? I mean, I think a show? lot of it was, you know, Finding different music, and then also, I mean, Brooklyn Vegan, reading things, and going, oh, that sounds like it would be fun to see. I forgot to mention, yeah, Brooklyn Vegan, for me as well, was a huge driver in what I knew about music. Right. That was like, that was probably single-handedly what really drove a lot of us knowing what was going on. Yeah. And still, to this day, you know, I mean, before... You know, and then you realize, well, you could just go to, like, the Bowery website and, you know, wait for every Tuesday when the email comes out with what's coming up or yeah. whatnot. But the, um, but yeah, I think a lot of it, especially for me, was just, like, well, I live in a small apartment in New York City. I like music, and I'd rather just be out. Yeah. And... Well, you lived in a great four-man bachelor pad <laughs> at the time, which was a good... good oh, yeah. When, good, I, good first, when I first pad. moved to the city, yeah. I mean, I remember actually going to see Arcade Fire uh, and the Neon Bible tour, and I think that day my roommate... Like, it told me he was going to, like, move out or yeah. something. It put me in this bad mood yeah. where it kind of almost, like, ruined the show. But it was this major, the National were the opener, and, you know, it was the Neon Bible Tour, so it was, like, you know, it's great. Oh, yeah, that was, that was an epic, and I yeah. Keep, you know, and I keep, and he's texting me, basically, being like, yeah, I'm going to move out. And I'm like, oh, man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think it was just a lot, you know, a lot of it was also friends. Like, you know, besides, even when we started going to shows or, like, other people, like, I just learn to kind of never say no we used to be a lot more cognizant of tickets and you've always been better about that than me where you've had 
X number of tickets in the backlog yeah, of shows I coming a, up. I used to have a file folder. I don't go to as many anymore. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I think my high for a year was like 40 to 50 shows. Yeah. And it, when you have paper tickets, I had to file them away. Yeah. Or, like, remember who had, you know, if it wasn't me that had the tickets, who had who had them? Yeah. You know, and even, like, last week, uh, before the Strength of Oak show, like, me and my friend Dave were gone, and I was just like, wait, you have these, right? You know? But the week before, we saw Deer Tick at Awesome Music Hall, and, like, I had to remember, oh, wait, they're on my phone, you know, for this yeah. one, you know? Yeah, and it's evolved over time too. I mean, New York is always going to be the kind of place where shows get announced, they sell out instantly, but it's become a lot more normalized to buy stuff on the second market. And I've found that's actually the main way I do tickets now. I just don't have the stress anymore of trying to buy things months ahead of time. I have a pretty good track record of buying stuff on StubHub and not getting totally screwed. A lot of times, yeah, you may pay a little bit of premium, five, ten bucks for smaller shows. But it's also opportunity cost, and the fact that you're still getting into a sold-out show is worth it most yeah, of the time. Yeah, I try to stay away from that as much as possible, mainly for the financial reasons. But, like, the, I guess it was Friday night, Idols played at Brooklyn Steel, and it sold out pretty early, and I was bummed. I think it was the day before I was thinking I was going to buy a ticket, it sold out. And uh, even all day Friday, I was looking to see what the resale was on, like, StubHub. And at one point, the ticket only cost $20 face. So the fees was probably about 30 And at one point, it was like 55 or something like that with the StubHub fees. I was like, well, if it goes down to like into the high 30s, I'll buy it, you know? Yeah. Um, but it, like I kind of missed that chance and it went right up to like $70, you know? Yeah. But I heard the show was amazing. Uh, but they're coming back and playing Terminal 5 in the fall, so yeah. I'll probably just get tickets for that. Yeah, and there's plenty of shows where I'll be watching them at my office at work up until 7 p.m., for instance, Mumford & Sons was playing, and Maggie Rogers was opening up. And I was like, wow, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing that. But eventually I was like, there's no way I'm going to pay this much for the tickets. And I actually went and stood outside Madison Square Garden for about 20 or 30 minutes just to see what the physical market was like um, with those players that are outside. I think and, I've only done that once. I bought a ticket in the store, for Spoon. Yeah. Oh, oh, so it was uh, Arcade Fire at Madison Square Garden. Spoon was the opener. Yeah. And I think I had already gone like the night before, and I was like, "Oh, that was awesome! I kind of need to go again." Yeah. And I think I bought a ticket on the street, and it was like yeah. it wasn't sold out, so it was easy. Yeah. You know, the only drawback was wondering if it was a fake, but yeah, you got in, you know. So. Yeah, I bought tickets outside venues a dozen or so times. I bought fakes. I'd say. Two or three big ones. I only bought fakes on StubHub once, and they have a great policy. They'll just refund you. So that's great. So that's actually why StubHub works and why you can count on it for tickets is that, yeah, you're going to have to pay more occasionally, but if you happen to buy a fake one, you get your money back, whereas if you buy outside of the venue, you do not. So I usually don't rely on buying outside of the venue. I'll much, I'd much rather just buy it online and then, then it becomes like a value proposition of like, am I going to pay X amount for the ticket or not? I think, I think for me, like a, if it gets to the point where I have to like go to the venue, I probably already gave up on seeing the show anyways. Yeah. Like I think there's, especially like the past couple of years, I think I've gotten over the fact where it's like, I don't have to be there. Yeah. I think that's why I saw so many shows early on. It's like you had these access to all these clubs or arenas and all these bands. And it's like, I felt like I had to be there or just wanted to, you know, to yeah, see it, it you know. It was great, and then at a certain point, I just realized, well, if I don't see that show, 
I'll be okay the next day. Yeah, and, and the, it, I mean, part the sun of it, is still rising. Yeah, part of it's FOMO, and part of it is like if it's a band you really love, you'll make it to the show. Right. But, I, I would have already figured it out. Yeah, just given up. You know, and, and on top of that, a lot of these bands, for instance, Iron and Wine. The first time I saw Iron and Wine at Terminal Five, which was in two thousand eight, I saw them with Chris. My jaw was dropped for like an hour straight. I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was so good. I saw then because of how good that was. I saw every Iron and Wine show for like five years, and they were. I don't say. I don't want to say they degraded in quality, but the production sure did, and it became a much different kind of show, where it never was the same magic as it was that first time. And it culminated with, I saw Iron and Wine at Radio City in, must have been 2010 or 2011, on the uh, Kiss Each Other Clean tour for that uh, that album, and it just didn't fit the room. The room was too big. And a lot of those acoustics where, when you're in a smaller space, that sounds so ethereal, when you're in Radio City and they're mic'd weird or... Sometimes in Radio City, a band will come in and they'll get mic'd differently or like their sound will get projected differently and it'll just, you know, not work. Uh, and then the next time I saw Iron and Wine at Terminal 5, this had to have been 2011, 2012, maybe 2013. Um, Sam Bean was so high. It was, he's playing and, the, and everything was electric. He had a whole band playing it like it was R&B, which was nothing, has nothing to do with why I fell in love with the band. So we definitely want to keep you up to date with shows that are happening this week. Like I say, we want to, we want to get you prepared for the week. You may be out of luck on, of course, buying tickets to some of this stuff and definitely use StubHub if you can. But tonight and tomorrow, Lizzo is at Brooklyn Steel. Lizzo, we discussed last week, on her album tour for Cuz I Love You. She's been kind of a rocket ship taking off, and uh, these shows sold out very quick. She has two more shows coming up at Radio City in September. That's on the 22nd and 24th. Um, So yeah, we may not make it tomorrow night to Lizzo, but definitely check her out if you get a chance. On Thursday at White Eagle Hall in Jersey City, which you have been to and I have not. Yeah, I've been there once. Who did you see? Uh, Blind Melon. Oh, man. Blind Melon, like, uh, I mean, it's, I don't know if it's a reunion or reboot. I mean, uh, Shannon Hoon died yeah. a long, long time ago. Yeah. Uh, but these sort of, they have a different singer. Sounds pretty good. Okay. Uh, and I, that's a band I kind of got into only a few years ago and just realized that they're amazing. Like, the okay. records are amazing. And I was like, well, screw it. I'll just go to the show, check it out. I need to get, I need to do that same thing. But uh, the whole Steady is on Thursday. I would like to hit this, so we'll see what happens. This weekend, Webster Hall, Broken Social Scene is doing three nights. Another kind of legendary show, to me at least, was the show you and Allie and I saw at Terminal 5, Broken Social Scene, which was... That was called Forgiveness Rock Record, right? Yeah. That was that must have been January of 2010 or 2011. I don't remember. But the reason I remember it is because Bowery Presents streamed the concert on YouTube. Right. It's still up there. I watched it recently. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, that was so cool back then. I remember, you know, 2010, yeah, the internet had been around, obviously, 
But a lot of these services, especially around streaming video and access to all these concerts and stuff, that was still evolving at this time. And the way, like, the way we actually access music, you know, we didn't have streaming services back then. We just had the MP3 stuff. And for concerts online, still a little nascent at this point because I remember 2008 probably buying a Kings of Leon DVD on Blu-ray, their you know concert at the O2 Arena in London. I remember that being a big deal to me. And I remember Dave Matthews at Radio City, him and Tim on Blu-ray. And that's still being like, that's how I access concert footage is I went to Best Buy and bought a Blu-ray. See, I still don't have a DVD player. Oh, mine broke. I have all these music <laughs> DVDs. Like, I was like, the only reason I'd buy a DVD yeah. at this point is to watch the concert DVDs I have. Well, exactly. Even I, though I, most of that stuff might be on YouTube at this point. Yeah, I, I actually just bought a crappy like 30 or $40 Samsung uh, Blu-ray player for the same reason. Just because... At Christmas, when my family would ask me what I wanted, I'd say, oh, get me a Blu-ray of, you know, whoever. So, yeah, Broken Social Scene. I'm, I'm going to the Thursday night show. Okay. So, I may go to that whole steady show with whoever I can drag along to that. Broken Social Scene, we saw, this must have been the end of 2017, or the fall of 2017 at Brooklyn Steel. Yeah, I think that was the first show we saw there. Yeah, that was, actually, that was the first time I saw a show at Brooklyn Steel. And then Saturday night, Disclosure is playing Brooklyn Mirage. This is that venue called Avant Gardener in Bushwick. I actually went to dinner at Bunker a couple weeks ago and tried to drive out and find this venue. And it's actually this big industrial space that like, there is no big sign that says, hey, here's Brooklyn Mirage, come on in. I think like, there's a door you go into, and then you're in this like mammoth space that has these four venues. So it's literally a mirage. Yeah, it's literally, yeah, it's literally. If you go online, you can see tons of layouts because they actually they have four distinct spaces that are operational year round, and they have, you know, they're advertising corporate events, they're advertising all kinds of stuff. But the main event there is Brooklyn Mirage in the summers. Its cap is six thousand. And so that's why Aphex Twin came back and played a show there. There are tons of electronic EDM type shows happening this summer. I have tickets to one in July, I think, Gorgon City and Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs. I'm excited to go and check it out. I doubt I'll make it here on Saturday, but we'll see. We'll see what my weekend looks like. Actually, I'm seeing The Who tomorrow night uh, at Madison Square Garden. Oh, right. Yeah, so the Who, um, what is the theme of this tour? Uh, well, I guess they realized that they can't go back out and just keep doing I mean, it's still greatest hits, but I guess to spice it up a little bit, uh, they have an orchestra with them. Right. And um, I think that would be pretty cool looking at the set list because, you know, it, the stuff for Tommy and Quadrophenia is just, you know, built for that. Yeah. Um, actually, I think one of my early entries to the Who becoming one of my favorite bands is when I saw the Tommy and Broadway with my family. Right, I remember that. I remember I, I listened to the cast recording a lot and then I was like, wait, this is actually like a real band too, you know? Oh yeah. And then Quadrophenia basically changed my life. So when I saw that, I mean, I for some reason I didn't buy a ticket for a while and then I just bought one a couple days ago. I was like, wait, why wouldn't I go see The Who? It's like my favorite band and my birthday. Happens to be, so. Oh, by the way, happy birthday to Seth tomorrow when this drops. Your first chance to listen to it will be Monday. It's Seth's birthday. So send him a note. Tell him you love him. I don't know if we can directly link to his Tinder profile, but we'll find that uh, if possible. 
I'm sure at some point the dating apps will link to podcasts. Yeah, hey, you know what? We can do both. You know, as long as we can uh, link back and forth, we'll make sure everybody gets in touch with Seth in the proper way. So yeah, anyways, I want to thank Seth for coming on. I'm sure he'll be around for future episodes. Whenever Chris gets back from his multi-week um, journey across the United States, he'll be on here as well, having similar conversations. Yeah, man, thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks. Woo! <laughs>